The Internet History Podcast is brought to you by MetaLab. Their slogan is MetaLab, we make interfaces. For a decade, MetaLab has helped some of the world's top companies and entrepreneurs build products that millions of people use every day. You probably didn't realize it at the time, but the odds are you've used an app that they've helped design or build. Apps like Slack, Coinbase, Facebook Messenger, Oculus, Lonely Planet, and many more. MetaLab wants to bring their unique design philosophy to your project. Let them take your brainstorm and turn it into the next billion-dollar app, from idea sketched on the back of a napkin to a final shipped product. Check them out at metalab.co. That's metalab.co. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. The book is almost here, everybody. I'm sure you're aware, but if you're not, the book that this podcast was born to research, the book that generated 180 episodes of this podcast, is coming out October 23rd. It's called How the Internet Happened from Netscape to the iPhone by Brian McCullough, me. If you haven't pre-ordered yet, please do so at your favorite book purveyor of choice, No, I can't put a link in the show notes because preferring one book vendor over another is strictly verboten. Yes, there is an ebook version, comes out the same day as the regular book, so you can pre order for that as well on the ebook platform of your choice. And yes, there is an audiobook version available, again, comes out the same day, but no, I did not read for it. Instead, Timothy Andres Pabon did which I think is better for all of you, as I'm not a professional voice talent, as I'm sure you're aware. I have a bit of a cold right now. In honor of the book coming out, and in order to remind you guys to pre-order, I thought I'd do a quick chapter episode, as I haven't done one of those in a long, long time. So this will officially be chapter episode 7.5, and it will consist of material that was either cut from the book or heavily reworded for the book, or reconceived, or used in another way, beginning with the story of Craigslist, which I had to cut entirely, but which is why I'm also giving this episode that title. Wait, Brian, why was Craigslist cut? Well, I turned in a manuscript that would have clocked in at 600 pages. Obviously, the publisher wasn't too keen on that, so things had to be cut down to get it to a much more manageable 400 pages, as it has become. And the Craigslist story, it just didn't fit anywhere. I tried to tack it on to the end of the eBay chapter, and it just felt like that, basically, like it was tacked on. And chronologically, it didn't fit in with the narrative of other chapters, since Craigslist really took off after the dot-com bubble burst. So there was conflict about moving the story forward, and also the theme didn't fit in a lot of ways. So anyway, I cut the Craigslist story wholesale, But you're going to get to hear it now. And after that, some more stuff. So please enjoy. If eBay sprung forth from the libertarian side of the Silicon Valley dialectic, then Craigslist, at least in spirit, 
represents the hippie ethos. Craig Newmark is not a San Francisco native. He was born in New Jersey, and he is not a self-identified hippie. I was a full-on nerd, Newmark says of his pocket-protector-wearing childhood self. A regular user of pioneering online community networks like Mindvox and The Well, Newmark worked as a programmer for IBM for 17 years before taking a job with Charles Schwab in San Francisco. And it was there that he ingested the utopian promise of the web and the internet. In 1995, the famously shy Newmark decided to circulate an email list of local cultural and artistic events to other San Francisco techies like himself. Word of mouth encouraged hundreds and then thousands of people to subscribe to the emailings, and soon Newmark was accepting event listings from complete strangers. When subscribers began emailing in about other things, say requests for roommates or job openings, Newmark added additional categories, and his email list evolved into a full-fledged classified ad service. Newmark coded up a website in 1996 in the minimal, unsophisticated format that was common to web design of the time. The website looked not at all different from Yahoo at that time, with a default gray background, peppered by a list of blue links and very, very few graphics and no pictures. In fact, Craigslist, as the website was called, is very much a time capsule, since the design of the site has remained largely unchanged down to the present day. But as the dot-com era exploded in San Francisco, modest, simple little Craigslist became the virtual village commons of the burgeoning tech scene. When the site was written up in Fast Company magazine in 1996, one of the first articles to profile the Craigslist phenomenon, the writer Catherine Mizuwiski ended the article by admitting that she owed, quote, the better part of my eclectic social life to events found on Craigslist, end quote. As with Pierre Omidyar and AuctionWeb slash eBay, for many years, Newmark operated Craigslist as a hobby. Like eBay, Newmark felt that Craigslist was serving the community itself as much as it was a community tool. Harking back to the utopianism of the valley, Newmark told Fast Company, quote, We've lost contact with our neighbors. We don't know who they are, but we crave contact with them. So creating a new place for people to interact with others in their own town is one way of establishing community, end quote. But unlike Omidyar, Newmark didn't mind managing his community himself. In fact, he felt that community curation was his calling. So there was no question of creating a system of self-management for the Craigslist community. Quote, customer service is public service, he told Wired magazine. For years, Newmark personally approved every listing on the site himself. If there were issues of fraud or disputes between buyers and sellers, Newmark himself stepped in to adjudicate. Late into the 2000s, after Newmark had hired a CEO to manage operations and a staff, he maintained his job as community minder, often working 12-hour days answering emails and resolving user problems. Quote, the irony is that I'm also on the board of directors, so I'm simultaneously the top and bottom of the company, he told a reporter proudly. Also unlike Omidyar, Newmark resisted commercializing his community. He turned down lucrative offers to place advertisements on the site, offers which would have made him a millionaire instantly. At the height of the dot-com bubble, Newmark was deluged by offers from venture capitalists and business people who salivated at the idea of pimping out Craigslist. But Newmark spurned all entreaties. When Craigslist finally did shed its nonprofit status, it only did so so that Newmark could hire that team of people to help him 
continued to manage the community by hand. And Newmark had merely turned on that revenue tap a trickle. For many years, Craigslist only charged when companies posted job ads. Everything else, from real estate listings to personal ads to used car sales, were free for buyers and sellers alike. In many ways, Craigslist and Craig Newmark completely epitomize the Internet era while simultaneously operating completely out of step with it. We're now completely used to having localized versions of Craigslist in almost every community, large and small, throughout the world. But unlike Amazon, Craigslist did not attempt to conquer the world all at once. Craigslist did not open in its second city, Boston, until June of 2000. And it did not expand to the most likely metropolitan areas like Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, Portland, San Diego, Seattle, Washington, D.C. until August of 2000. I don't think there's any way to make a community get big fast, Newmark said of his growth philosophy, contra Jeff Bezos. Quote, communities grow organically and that's always slow at first. And Newmark's refusal to fully monetize what would clearly be one of the most valuable and profitable websites ever created baffled many at the time, to say the least. That's not to suggest that Craigslist is a popper, certainly not these days. The company is still private, so exact figures are unknown, but estimates for Craigslist's annual income from the fees it does charge range into the hundreds of millions of dollars. And Craig Newmark has become a high-profile philanthropist in recent years. Still, much, much more money could have been made if Newmark had ever wanted to. Quote, Craigslist is sitting on a potential gold mine of revenue. If only it would abandon its communist manifesto, said Eric Baker, founder of the online ticket marketplace StubHub. In an era where Craigslist was often more heavily trafficked than either Amazon or eBay, Fortune magazine itself editorialized, quote, If Craigslist were run by executives with even the slightest appetite for wealth, it might be a major financial player in online commerce. And if investment bankers were confused by Craig Newmark's seeming lack of greed, owners of major newspaper chains have been downright apoplectic about it. Over the course of the last 20 years, newspaper advertising revenues have plummeted. Just as the news industry feared, this was largely due to the Internet in the form of sites like Monster.com, eBay, Match.com, and more, stealing the lucrative classified advertising market away from them. Craigslist was as responsible as any web player for eating the newspaper industry's lunch, and as Fortune pointed out, those other sites merely diverted money from the newspapers into their own pockets, while, quote, Craigslist sucks money out of the system entirely, end quote. Craig Newmark can be thought of as one of the most successful of the dot-com-era entrepreneurs, even if he was never as monetarily successful as he could have been. But that was because, at least to date, there has been no billion-dollar Craigslist IPO. Newmark has succeeded while still holding fast to the hippie side of the Silicon Valley original culture. To this day, Craigslist has zero banner ads. Most of the listings on the site are free, and the 1996-era dull gray site design remains unchanged. To this day, a peace sign adorns the Craigslist web address. Quote, I admit that when I think of the money one could make from all this, I get a little twinge, Newmark says. But I'm pretty happy with nerd values. Get yourself a comfortable living then do a little something to change the world, end quote. Okay, these next stories sort of got cut from the book, but not really. They got reworded and used in different ways in different places, but I thought you might like to hear the original stories as intended chronologically, some of which you might recognize if you've listened to all of the interview episodes. 
Other early entrepreneurs asked themselves a simple question. What business, service, or activity simply made more sense online? Classified advertising had long been a staple of the pre-web online universe of bulletin board systems and Usenet newsgroups. As we've seen from Craigslist, it didn't take much imagination to see that bringing classifieds online would bring scale to this type of advertising that wasn't possible previously. In December of 1993, the owner of a small human resources agency in Massachusetts by the name of Jeff Taylor had a vision for what he called a monster online bulletin board system for employment ads. With the advent of the Mosaic browser, Taylor quickly shifted the development to a website, and in April of 1994, Monster.com was registered as the 454th.com on the web. Taylor seeded the new site with job listings by initially offering them to hiring managers for free. Word of mouth spread quickly, and soon job-seeking web surfers were chasing the hundreds of job listings that were popping up. Quote, But they weren't coming from Boston, where my jobs were, Taylor says. They were coming from Peru or India or from Russia or some from Silicon Valley, end quote. The web allowed the global reach that traditional classifieds couldn't, and the digital medium allowed for the instantaneous interactivity that print ads couldn't. Users could submit their resumes in the same platform that the jobs themselves were listed on. Interactivity obviously had an even greater potential when it came to personal ads. A pioneering networking entrepreneur by the name of Gary Kremen had just such a revelation after experimenting with the 1-900 dating numbers that were popular at the time. In 1994, Kremen launched Match.com as an email-centric product. The service offered the ability for singles to flirt and exchange anonymous emails before meeting, much in the same way that phone-based dating services operated. When Kremen saw Mosaic for the first time, he knew the web was the perfect platform for his application. He launched the Match.com website in 1995 and began seeding it with profiles of single women, having them scan and fax pictures into him so that Match could post profiles on their behalf. I know men, Kremen told me. How do you throw a party? You only need about one woman for every hundred guys. I knew that would have a real fast network effect, end quote. Kramer experimented early with concepts like two-way matching, a precursor to the permission-based networking of friending, perhaps, and searching based on metrics like shared interests and background. For a long time, online dating, as it came to be known, suffered from a certain social stigma, but the inherent efficiency of this sort of digital matching proved to be far superior to random chance. Online personals eventually grew to a multi-billion dollar industry, and by some measures, more than one-fourth of long-term relationships begin online today. Airline ticketing had actually been in a networked environment for decades. The famous Sabre network was designed by IBM in the 1950s to allow airlines and travel agents to book travel worldwide. And beginning with CompuServe in the 1980s, a lot of early online services had some form of travel search. But most of these early online services still required ticket agents to actually process the tickets. By the mid-1990s, though, Americans themselves were increasingly networked, so it seemed obvious to some entrepreneurs that ticketing could be opened up to everybody. The system that Sabre offered via the online services was called Easy Sabre, and it was run by a young executive by the name of Terry Jones. Jones was eager to test Easy Sabre on the Internet, but he had to wait until commercial activity was finally allowed on the net in 1993. Jones successfully launched Travelocity in 1995 as the first website that allowed users to do booking and compare fares and schedules themselves. Because Jones had to cater to the concerns of travel agents who were Sabre's biggest customers, 
At launch, all ticketing was still routed through travel agents. Quote, but we changed that pretty fast, Jones told me, because we found our customers were not getting the service they wanted. We couldn't find agents who really bought into it, online booking. So Travelocity started its own travel agency. Customers could use any agent they wanted to complete the ticketing process, but they could also use Travelocity's in-house agent to keep things simple. It took off like a weed in the spring, Jones says. The ability to manipulate all the variables of an itinerary proved empowering to users. A lot of people didn't think travel would be very big on the Internet, Jones told me. And yet today it's far and away the largest part of e-commerce. I was one of those guys who was a frustrated business traveler myself, says Rich Barton, who in the early 1990s was a young executive at Microsoft. I remember being on the phone with the corporate travel agent at Microsoft and wanting to jump through the phone, turn the computer towards me and do it myself. I could hear the click, click, click of the keys and the corporate travel agent was using. So I knew she was using something on a computer, end quote. This was around the time that Bill Gates was getting web religion, so Microsoft became the unlikely innovator of the other great online travel pioneer, Expedia. Initially, the idea for a Microsoft travel service had been conceived of as a CD-ROM publication, listing schedules, connections, and the like. But after the Netscape Big Bang, Barton, who took over the project, succeeded in launching Expedia on the web. As it had with Slate, Microsoft provided deep pockets and a permissive attitude to Barton's in-house startup. I thought of those guys as my venture capitalists, Barton said of Gates and Balmer. Launching in 1996, Expedia would pioneer the true fair comparison search we're familiar with today, enabling users to calculate price and schedules in real time. Again, the ability to cut out the middleman proved irresistible to many. Quote, Consumers don't want to have to pick up the phone to talk to a travel agent just to understand what the schedules and availabilities are, Barton said. They want to actually do it themselves, end quote. Like travel booking, stock trading had been networked for many years, at least for professional brokers. And similarly, limited online trading was a key selling point for the early online services like CompuServe, Prodigy, et al., but when it came to the web, online stock trading merged with a decades-long trend towards discount brokerages, as pioneered by the likes of Charles Schwab and Fidelity. And so when stock trading came to the web, it offered users not just the ability to manage their own affairs for the first time, but also promised quite considerable cost savings. In 1982, an entrepreneur named William Porter launched a pioneering networked brokerage service called Trade Plus. For a monthly fee, Trade Plus allowed users to dial in and connect online stock trades during market hours. In 1991, Porter spun out a new company called E-Trade Securities to provide online trading to America Online and CompuServe. This time, the business model did away with the monthly fees and instead charged a low flat rate commission for trades and a plethora of free financial advice and information as well. Again, the web provided a natural next step. And within weeks of launching its website in 1995, internet trades accounted for 13% of E-Trade's revenue. By the first half of 1996, trading volume on E-Trade's platform had tripled, from 50 million shares traded to more than 170 million. This was thanks in large part to E-Trade assuming the role of a deep discount broker, whereas even a traditional discount broker like Schwab charged $80 to $100 per trade, E-Trade's flat fees went as low as $14.99 per trade. Soon, a rash of other deep discount online brokers set up shop on the web, and Wall Street was changed forever. 
The democratization of financial trading that these deep discounters provided encouraged millions of Americans to fire their brokers, just as they had fired their travel agents, and would eventually lead to the proliferation of so-called day traders in the coming dot-com bubble. E-Trade was a very early dot-com IPO listing on the stock exchange in 1996, and its success suggested that simply facilitating business and transactions online was a promising entrepreneurial angle to explore. Some of the other early dot-coms to go public were companies that were in the business of helping people make money on the internet. Check-free and CyberCash facilitated and secured online commerce. There were other startups who dreamed of disrupting money entirely. Sound familiar, Bitcoin enthusiasts? These startups promised various schemes for e-cash more than a decade before Bitcoin hit the scene. And a company called Open Market IPO'd and attained a billion-dollar market cap a full year before Amazon did by pursuing a pure e-commerce dream. Open Market was founded in 1994 as an attempt to create an online shopping mall. But then Open Market's management seemingly remembered the old adage that the best way to get rich in a gold rush is to sell pickaxes to the prospectors. Recognizing the more than 30,000 businesses that were already online by the end of 1995, Open Market shifted gears to enable other companies to open up virtual storefronts. Open Market helped power Pathfinders, abortive attempts at creating a Time Warner shopping site, and helped Disney, AT&T, and banks like First Union bring commerce and transaction functionality to their early websites. Well, there you go. That's all for the odds and ends chapter episode. Again, please pre-order the book, How the Internet Happened, from Netscape to the iPhone. Or depending on when you're listening to this, just buy it now. If you've listened to this podcast from the very beginning, I think you'll find it gratifying to see how all of this came together. You'll see how some of the interviews we got shaped my thinking. And believe me, even if you listen to every minute of every episode of this show... The book has about 70% of material you've never heard. So please buy the book, and thanks as always for listening. Amazing new interview episode of the Internet History Podcast is coming in two weeks. 